The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimizing your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 257 of The Real Food Real, we share with you an episode from the Triathlon Tarrant podcast on all things high-performance fat loss. While we discuss specifics for triathlon training, there is so much you will learn whether you ever plan to swim, bike, run or not. We explore many of my favorite topics, including real food, low-carb healthy fat, carbohydrate tolerance and how to measure this, calories, additional testing, and so much more. Give me one good reason that I should continue listening to your advice when you think that cashew butter is the best butter. It is the best butter. No, it is not. Worst butter. Worst butter of all butters. Who are you? Yeah, Who am I married to? Don't even know you. I'm on team (laughs) Steph with this one. Cashew butter is the top butter. Oh, thank you. Okay. Team cashew butter. I love it. <laughs> All right. Give me the ranking of your butters in order of most to least enjoyable butters. Mm, well, that's something I've never considered. Wow. I think I'd have to put peanut butter next, number two. Mm-hmm. I'm a massive fan of peanut butter. I know. It's like crack. Isn't it? Yeah. Especially when you make it with like coconut oil, cacao, a little bit of salt, and it's been in the freezer. Mm. <laughs> You're not talking to him about this at the right time, and we'll explain to the audience why in a moment. <laughs> but um, how is that? <laughs> I, I have a little tear in one of my eyes right now. I'm just there's dust in it. Still on the butters, I will just say I I tried uh, pecan butter when we were in Kona. It was at um, oh, one of the was, stores. Oh, awful! The best oh. walnut butter and pecan butter are oh. phenomenal. Oh no! Oh, love it, love it. All butters. What do you like, Tara? The question. 
Well, peanut butter is number one. Almond butter is number two. But we've done some muscle testing just for fun. I have no idea how legitimate that is. But it shows up that cashew butter and sunflower seed butter, totally okay. But peanut butter and almond butter, not good for me. So I don't know. I gotta. I have to reassess everything I thought I knew. Peanut butter is the glue that keeps my body together. <laughs> Might be some of the problems because <laughs> I can't imagine that you're sticking with one teaspoon. I can see you with the whole jar sitting on the couch with a big spoon. <laughs> yes, you have take Taryn already. I don't even make it to the couch. Yeah, that's I, right. I stand by the cupboard. <laughs> It's true. And you're right. It is not one <laughs> teaspoon. It is anything but one teaspoon, unless you count like an ice cream scoop as a teaspoon. But anyway, to fill our listeners in, Taryn is on day two of a fast mimicking diet. Taryn, just give the quick recap of what that means. So that means that yesterday I had 1,200 calories. Today I had 800 calories and I have a headache and I just slammed about six pickles because I realized that my sodium is probably quite low. So I am sharp today. I'm firing on one cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> and you do this for three more days yet. Do it for three more days. So and let's ask the expert, do you support this? Because he did this, I think he did this without checking with you first, correct? Correct. This isn't, so I actually learned about this on Instagram. So lucky I follow Taryn or it would have been the first time I heard about it today on our call. <laughs> but to start from the top, I am a big believer that fasting is a muscle so I like all kinds of fasting within reason, and we can get to that, but I just think it's really important that you start where you are because if our listeners have never done an FMD and that's where they start, they're going to find it pretty brutal versus starting with some day-to-day, like setting up your blood sugar control, your meal-to-meal windows, extending your overnight fast, and then looking at an FMD. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. That's sort of step-by-step evolution of things. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. you're not in trouble. You haven't. Not, I'm not in trouble. You're not in trouble for. I, I get what you're saying, though. Like last year when mm. I did the fast mimicking diet for the first time, I think I hadn't extended my overnight fast yet. It was like, all right, well, I'll start off with a fast mimicking diet and then go into the overnight fast, and it was brutal. Yeah. Today it's not my favorite thing, but it's not awful. You're not as I've, edgy as you were last time. I wasn't edgy. How dare you say that? Uh-huh. I was edgy. No way. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, the people out there don't know the real triathlon Taryn. Edgy is his middle name and oh boy, does something like this bring it on. So, okay, let's talk about you, Steph, and your expertise in this. Why is fasting good, particularly for endurance athletes? Oh yeah, I love this question. So we want our preferred metabolic profile to be fat burning. But when we look at the endurance space, especially what's been going on up until recent years, all, nearly all endurance athletes are sugar burners because they've been told to eat all the carbs and they're fueling off, you know, 90 grams of carbs an hour and they're bonking in every race that they do that's longer than a few hours. So we, of course, want to be creating this beautiful fat-burning metabolism and fasting is just one of the strategies that really helps. I also love it from a gut healing point of view. You know, we know that digestion is quite costly and eating is an expensive process, whereas fasting is- Can a I re- interrupt and say, ask costly how? Costly how in that all of our resources are drawn into the gut. So blood flow and that can essentially play a game of tug of war with the body. So, you know, we've all had that big meal where we feel really sleepy 
there's multiple of reasons as to why that can occur. But one of the main ones is that all the resources are going into the gut to start to digest that food and that blood's not going out to the heart, legs, lungs, brain, etc. Does that make sense? Mm, yep. And so I love fasting for that digestive ease to help heal the gut. But, you know, ultimately for us to be fat burners so that we can become bonk proof for these long course races. Mm. Taryn said something very interesting to me the other day. He, we were just talking about various strategies and he said, you know, in chatting with you and Dan Plews, who, who uh, our listeners will know that Taryn worked with leading into Challenge Roth, which was his first full distance race, that he was, you know, doing some low carb, high fat eating. And in North America in particular, that isn't as prevalent as it may be down in Australia. And we were kind of talking about the fact that you guys are kind of ahead of the game as far as we are here, that people here were like, what are you doing? You're going to give yourself a heart attack and high cholesterol. And yet, you know, he had the best race of his mm-hmm. life and it was a great strategy for him. And obviously Dan is working with and Dan is the reigning amateur champion at Kona on that exact type of diet. Clearly it works, but I think it's interesting that here in North America, there's still a lot of pushback because people haven't really caught on or it hasn't caught on here yet in quite the same way. Would you agree? Yeah, we're seeing that quite a lot, actually. Look, some of the people that have been contacting me after hearing or listening to Taryn and I on YouTube are a bit the same. Like they've been looking for someone to guide them and they haven't been able to find anyone over your way. And yeah, they're quite surprised that those of us down under, so to speak, are well ahead of the game. And, you know, I guess that it just comes from a few of the specialists that are really doing a lot of work over here. But at the same time, there are still many triathletes that think it's BS. They still are very into their carbs and will demonize anything that's about fat burning. So there are critics everywhere you go. (laughs) Yeah, I can say from my experience that when I reached out to you, I think your first question was, well, why don't you find somebody locally? I said, well, I tried. There's nobody. I, I Honestly, I tried, Steph. And it was so tough to find anyone in North America. And you said, and Dan actually said something similar around the same time he's like oh just been into this high fat thing for so long it's kind of done and up here it's it's like it's foreign and i can say that when i was racing roth it was carnage it was like every 10 feet there was somebody puking in the bushes or bonking or walking and i actually thought right up until about 27 k in i was like of the right of the run. I'm like, I don't deserve for this to feel this easy. This is an Ironman. But meanwhile, it's like, it looked like the beaches of Normandy with the amount of people that were going in and out of the bushes and stopping. It was wild. Mm. And yet people think more carbs. Mm. Yeah. Like I said, why would you train for 16 weeks of your life or longer in many cases to have your day unravel because you've got your pants around your ankles. (laughs) Like it's just unnecessary. It's totally avoidable. Yeah. But yeah, Australia is ahead of the game, but um, I still think we've got a lot more work to do in the space because, Joe, you were talking about the... Oh, Kim. Sorry, Kim. Kim, pardon me. Kim, you were talking about the... I thought um, you said Joe, and I was like, your pal Joe? <laughs> you do have a friend, Joe? Oh, okay. Don't feel bad, Steph. I once called... Who was it? I called your Mel, your I called, I called Mel, my camera woman, uh, my wife, Kim, once. I'm bad with names. <laughs> we, we all do. I am very I'm getting bad on my soapbox. I'm getting carried away. <laughs> yeah, like you were saying before, Kim, about the saturated fats and the heart disease. Like that's a huge myth that's been going on in the space for like 50 years, right? But then we see people becoming 
so we've gone from that fat phobia and now we're going to be carb phobic and it's just, it's messy. So we've really got to look at getting our facts right and making sure people are getting their information from the right places. Well, and it's not just, you know, among the athletes themselves. I had just my regular yearly blood work done. My cholesterol was <laughs> a little bit high and my doctor said to me, well, there's some reasons it could be, I work with a natural a uh, naturopathic doctor, functional medicine physician, got it all. Everything is under control. There's a specific reason for that going on. But my GP who ran the blood work, very conventional doctor said, all right, you're going to have to change your diet right now. I'll give you three months, no eggs, no beef, no pork, just lots of vegetables, only chicken breasts. And in three months, if it's not better, we're going to have to put you on some pills. And I said, okay. And I walked out shaking my head inside in hell. I'm going on statins. Uh, we will get this figured out. But the point being, even medical doctors, you know, still aren't up with that kind of research telling me eggs like you're never going to look at an egg again. Um, OK. Yeah, I agree. And it's something that has to change, especially because we now have seen like a huge list of side effects of statin drugs that people aren't told about when it comes to that first prescription. But the issue is that having high total cholesterol is not the problem in the first place. So that is the biggest myth of the last five decades. You know, cholesterol is vital. Without it, we would die. Our brain is 25% cholesterol. All of our hormones are made on cholesterol. So suppressing it is disastrous. And the other thing that that doctor and many need to remember is that dietary cholesterol affects things about 1%. <laughs> so changing your diet is not going to change your total cholesterol unless, of course, you've got a genetic condition and we need to stop demonizing whole foods, full stop. I fully agree with you, completely and totally agree with you. And that's the funny thing I was sort of explaining to Taryn, the possible connections that could cause your cholesterol to be high without having anything to do with your diet. And, you know, this is, mm. of course, news to him. He'd have no reason to know it. But, you know, most people don't know that, right? It's just the doctor says. But unfortunately, you know, our medical professionals here still, well, and in many places around the world, are just not up to date on the most current research. And that's a little scary because a different person might have been in that office and said, okay, well, just give me the prescription now, doc. <laughs> you know, and so it just kind of, it's Many interesting do. that we're talking about this today, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, the timing was was interesting, but yeah, very good info. Can I play devil's advocate here? What are the downsides to getting away from carbs and adopting a more low-carb, high-fat diet? Because there, there's got to be some or at least perceived downsides because I remember a few years ago when I was eating more plant-based, more vegan. I was never vegan, but we were like 80, 90% plant-based. And I remember the vegan propaganda that was starting to pop up in Facebook as the algorithm does. And it was like keto diet is the least healthy of 50 diets as said by mm. a panel of doctors. So like, where is this coming from? Like, what are the potential negative outcomes that are causing this? Well, I think we have to define what keto is first, because there are a lot of people who think keto is meat with cheese on top. And of course, that wouldn't be a diverse diet and you'd be missing a lot of, you know, macro and micronutrients. So we've got to look at the definition, because when I talk about what is LCHF, so lower carbohydrate, healthy fat, it is actually mostly plants with moderate amounts of quality protein and the right balance of healthy fats. And, you know, we can define that further. But, you know, Taryn, you and I have been talking about resistant starch. And I saw your Instagram where you were talking about the potato for cooking and cooling of the potato and that thing that really feeds the microbiome, right? So it feeds the trillions of bacteria that largely live in our large intestine. So 
one of the problems of going too low carb is if you don't know about prebiotics and resistant starch, you will starve your gut and create dysbiosis. And so that's when keto can be unhealthy. That's when low carb is a problem. Mm. And what happens if you create dysbiosis? Well, many things. So firstly, if like the beneficial bacteria are starved, it will create space for something else to grow in that environment. So we usually see a pathogenic overgrowth of what was a commensal bacteria. So let me break that down. A commensal bacteria is something that's beneficial in small amounts, like candida is beneficial in small amounts, for example. Yet if these are allowed to grow, then that creates symptoms, whether it's more typical digestive symptoms like IBS, bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, or it's more systemic in nature. So dysbiosis can cause skin issues. It can cause mood issues. Obviously, our gut and brain are connected by the vagus nerve. So that communication is very clear. It can cause inflammation in our joints. Like we always say that all disease starts in the gut and so too does all health. So we're not just looking at specific gut symptoms, although that's definitely something to investigate. We've got to look at our overall health and any symptoms that we could definitely improve by avoiding dysbiosis or treating it if it's already there. One thing I just want to throw in here, I love that you said lower carb, healthy fat, as mm-hmm. opposed to low carb, high fat, which is how it's often rep- most often represented, at least in North America. And that, like you said, I think that gives people permission to eat meat with cheese and that's their diet because, well, that's what it's called, low carb, high fat. And I love the reframing, lower carb, healthy fat. That needs to catch on over here. Please enforce that because I say lower deliberately, right? Because it's lower than the food pyramid, which is a very good thing. We all know the food pyramid is a huge reason why we've got the health crisis with not only overweight and obesity, but conditions that are avoidable like type 2 diabetes. And we look at the food pyramid and it's got this recommendation of somewhere between 400 and 600 grams of carbs per day. And that's just ridiculous versus lower carb could be 50 grams of carbs a day if you're dealing with a metabolic condition, or it could be 150 grams of carbs per day if you're a lean male athlete. So it's this spectrum that still allows for lots of plants, resistant starch, fruit, foods that are natural, whole foods, that are the most nutrient-dense, that are very important for our health and performance and longevity. And then, of course, fats are really important to define. Like, I think we need saturated fat. So, of course, we need coconut oil, MCT, grass-fed butter, the fat on our meats and so on. But we don't need to be living off those foods. I prescribe about 20% of our total fat intake from saturated fats and the rest largely from omega-3s, which are our olives, olive oil, oily fish, avocado, nuts, seeds, so those anti-inflammatory fats. So we want mostly those, not the cheese and steak that we see in that more conventional keto slash Atkins from back in the day. So we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go forward. I think we should probably address a little bit of your credentials and your history, <laughs> which we did talk about a bit about in yeah, the... Yeah, we got into the weeds there yeah, really quick. Yeah, we jumped right but in. I, but, but I like the weeds. I'm yeah, a fan. But, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the intro, but you have a bachelor's degree in exercise science, postgraduate degree in human nutrition. So you are well-educated, you know your stuff, and you've kind of been through the ringer with your own health. You know, Taryn has in our notes here that you were overweight, so unhealthy your hair wouldn't grow, food controlled you, and then, you know, some big changes kind of 
started that ball rolling to change everything. So maybe take us back a little bit. Yeah, it feels like another lifetime. It was that long ago now. Like it, it all sort of started when I was a teenager and I wanted to lose weight. And what I learned from Dolly and Girlfriend magazine back in the day was that you had to count calories and eat low fat. So that's what I did. I didn't just do it a little bit. I did it very well. Like I was moving house the other day and I found this scrapbook. I used to cut out every single article on food, calories, low fat, dieting, and paste it in this scrapbook and obsess and just like learn everything that I needed to learn. Like I used to carry around this calorie counting book. It helps me to this day. Like I can still tell you calories in food levels that aren't normal, but that's where it really started with my sort of eating disorder. And in my mind, if I lost weight, I would be happy. So all I did was focused around losing weight. But of course, I lost my menstrual cycle. My hair wouldn't grow. I wasn't fueling my body, not to mention my brain. And so I was really suffering hormonally, but also from a mood point of view. So you're not going to be surprised when I then tell you that I got to what was skinny in my mind and I wasn't happy. So I was still, you know, I still had all of those symptoms that I didn't realize I was making worse with my eating disorder, with not providing my body with quality fats for my hormones, with quality fats for my brain. You know, it's really crystal clear that this is not an uncommon scenario that we see off the back of the low fat era and the, you know, the abundance of calorie counting programs that we have with the, you know, I won't mention any brands, but the companies that I will, I have have the Weight Watchers book in my bag all the time. So I know all about the calorie counting. And (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah, it's and that's, that's probably one of the more common names in North America. My mom did it. I did it. it, My friends all did it. We all had the book. We all had it in our bag all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, continue. Sorry. Absolutely. And so that, yeah, all the programs are low fat because essentially fat is more than double the calories of a protein or a carbohydrate. But we know that biology is not math. Anyway, back to my story, I was still really unhappy and I was almost prescribed antidepressants. At the time, I must have known better, although I was probably about 18 from memory. And then I met someone who encouraged me to go gluten-free. This is probably nearly 15 years ago now, before I even knew what gluten was, before you could find gluten-free items on a menu. But someone quite famous now who is more of a healer, for want of a better word, and he basically challenged me to go gluten-free to see if that would help my symptoms, my mood, and how I was feeling quite on the border of depression. I was pretty desperate, so I was willing to try anything. And within a matter of weeks, it was actually really quite night and day in how I was starting to feel. That was the catalyst for me to start to understand the power of food. You know, what started with me quitting gluten really started my interest in learning more about the myths that we've been been exposed to in the health and weight loss space and understanding how I could literally heal myself with food, as cliche as it sounds. And so I went on this real food journey where I started to cut out the food that was processed and packaged, which low-fat food often is, and study, I guess, the more up-to-date science rather than what trap I had fell into with the low-fat and calorie counting back in the day. So that was when I was like, I need to learn more about this, but I also want to be able to teach others. 
So I went back to do my postgrad in nutrition so I could have the qualifications to teach others the power of real food and how to stop basically the calorie counting and low fat ways. And I've become a bit of a myth buster along the way, you know, breaking down not only the low fat myths, but the saturated fat, heart health myths and all the carbohydrate and endurance fueling myths that we'll speak about today. So yeah, I set up my company in 2011 and the natural nutritionist sort of been going ever since. And I love what I do. And I also believe that, you know, my health journey, a huge part of it is that I get to do what I love. I think the purpose of life is a life of purpose is really important for me. And I think many others to have that really balanced view and that overall picture of health that extends beyond food. Having gone through that, what do you make of the food industry right now? Is it getting away from that really unhealthy message or is it still there? There's just more steps around that are trying to fix it, but people are still falling into the trap of big food. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's just different traps. Yeah. Like big food is profit based. So while their original message was just all around low fat and, and the calories and lowering your cholesterol with margarine kind of a scenario, it's now just catching on to different food trends. So definitely in Australia, we had a huge I quit sugar movement. So then all the products are coming through that are low sugar or sugar free. Worldwide, vegan is a huge movement. So now we're seeing the V word being used on labels to sell products in advertising campaigns. So they're really just catching on to what consumers are are purchasing, obviously. And ultimate goal for us as consumers is to be more savvy and to not be greenwashed by labels or terms, but to, you know, read labels or better still buy food that doesn't have a label and you won't have to worry. What are the big things or the most common traps that you see? Because I think about back when I was an investment advisor and I shudder a little bit as I say that, but there was always say the big theme that I saw the public going after was they were always chasing a secret. They always thought that there was a secret to beat the market. And that was what got people in trouble because they were always chasing something that wasn't stable. It wasn't really viable. And it would go to the extent of people chasing things that were outright frauds because there was always that deep down feeling, I think, that humans are are born with that we want to be smarter than whatever is out there. We think that we can beat something that is almost unbeatable? Like, is there something comparable in the food industry that you deal with constantly? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I haven't eaten in two days, so I don't actually know if it was interesting or not. Do you remember what you just asked? Not really. (laughs) You know what I think it might be is that we guess too much. So Mm. there's too much guesswork about our health and assumptions made. So you know, what you did, Kim, by going to get your blood work is what we try and get all of our clients to do and for them to understand why, you know, because what we're looking at when we work or when I work with someone is, of course, their health history and, you know, their goals. And we talk to them about their food and set up a plan moving forward. But the unknown is how we could really help them optimize their health. And bloods are a really great gateway to that because 
We don't know if you've got low B12 or low iron or low vitamin D or high inflammation markers. Like, I just think getting that information is will allow you to develop a plan that's really well-rounded and then you're not having to search for something that doesn't exist, like the miraculous weight loss pill or something that doesn't exist. And the other side of the testing, of course, Taryn, you're familiar with is the microbiome testing. So gut health is so vogue right now and people are drinking kombucha like it's water and we're spending all our money on these gut potions and pills when we really don't know what we need. So the testing will remove the guesswork and allow you to then develop exactly that, a personalized protocol to look after your health performance and longevity without wasting your money and pissing things down the toilet, pardon my French, because you, you don't need it. You know, you need to understand what your body needs and have a plan that really has minimal, if any, guesswork involved. Just by the way, this is the Triathlon Terran podcast. You can say pissing. We talk about poop. It's just everything goes here, particularly I, bodily functions. We're from Canada. We enjoy toilet humor. No, you enjoy toilet humor. I, I'm specific. from Canada. I enjoy toilet humor. <laughs> Don't put that on me. <laughs> if you had your druthers, like take your pick. Doesn't matter where people are in the world, but they've got an unlimited amount of money. Actually, let's not say an unlimited amount of money. Let's say they've got enough money to do an appropriate amount of testing, what are the few tests that you get people to start with? I always start with microbiome testing if possible because if you think of it this way, someone could come with bloods and they've got a iron deficiency or low ferritin or some kind of anemia picture, but what's the reason behind that? Unless they're a vegan, of course, dietary change would only do so much it has an underlying like root cause issue in the gut. So we try and go there first if possible. And the gut tests that we have access to would have cost like half a billion dollars five or 10 years ago. And now they cost $349. This is Australian dollars. So do the maths. But it's so cheap considering your long-term health. Like I think your investment in your health now is avoiding having to pay for sickness in the future. And then, of course, that 349 is going to stop you buying all the pills and potions or seeking that magic weight loss pill when there's going to be issues to treat in your gut. That's what I'm so passionate about. Well, a lot of people may or may not have heard the term. It, it seems to be around a lot more, but all health begins in the gut. All illness begins mm. in the gut, right? Like that's kind of, especially in the natural and functional communities, that's where everybody starts because that's where you have to start. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. And so, of course, there are people with financial constraints and I get it, but um, what we can then do is start with whatever bloods they're able to get either through Medicare or whatever their system is. There might be a small out-of-pocket expense. It might be $500. So we just kind of work with the budget and start with what they're able to start with and then, oh, hello, and then we add on from <laughs> I there. To I told you he'd bark. <laughs> I could have called that. His arch nemesis was out front barking. <laughs> our listeners know by now we do the podcast in our house and, and yeah. And PD enjoys barking. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> but like, let's put that gut test into perspective, even if it is $350. I know the one that you prescribed to me that was, I think, $150 US dollars. That's a third of what I'm spending on a pair of Nike 4% shoes. I know, right. 
and let's say I don't even get the super expensive shoes. I just get an average pair of shoes. It's the same price. And a healthy gut is probably going to make me faster for many more years than a pair of shoes that are going to wear out in four months. I'll jump in and say, I, I know that it is hard for people to wrap their heads around it. I, you know, again, we've talked about on the, this on the podcast in the past. I'm sort of at the tail end of a 10 year long health journey myself. And at the beginning of it, before I was diagnosed, I turned out I had Lyme, I got Lyme disease and mm. went undiagnosed for six and a half years. So I'm a stubborn person and I wasn't willing to give up the quality of life I used to have. So I just persisted and spent every dime I had on testing, but not at the start. Mm. At the start, I just didn't follow through, didn't finish bottles of supplements that I was recommended by my naturopaths. You know, they'd say, oh, maybe we should do this testing. They'd tell me the price. I'd, oh, I don't know about that. And then I wouldn't do it. You know, turn around now, I don't spend any money on anything but my health because once you become sick, you realize that's the only important thing. So I do hope that people listening, you know, I know if you've got your health today, you're thinking, well, why would I want to spend my money on that? But I tell you what, it's not hard, especially in this day and age of chemicals everywhere and our, our food quality is not as good as it used to be and yada, yada. It's not hard to become ill. And as soon as you lose it, you realize the importance. So please, people, try to do what you can not to lose it. And if that gut test, you know, if you have to sacrifice one frivolous purchase, it's worth it. I couldn't agree more. I mean, triathletes easy spend 10 grand on a new bike to go faster when they could just lose five or 10 kilos. Like, come on, we've got to get a, a perspective right. And I think, yeah, like have a look at where you can tweak the budget if that's where you're at, because you should be able to prioritize that sort of money, considering the significance of the results that and what you can do with that. Exactly. How are endurance athletes guts compromised and what happens? Oh my goodness. <laughs> How much time do we have? No, I'm kidding. So I think if we start from the top, the first thing we need to look at is a bit more historical. Like so maybe even before we were endurance athlete, what was our antibiotic exposure like? Because I haven't taken antibiotics in 20 years, but as a child I was probably prescribed it every winter for tonsillitis. Mm, you know, yeah. my gut's great now, but many of us haven't done anything to correct what happened historically. You know, even taking a further step back from that, there's a huge difference whether you were a natural born or C-section baby. You know, natural born babies get the seeding when they come through the vaginal canal, so they've already got their mother's microbiome. A C-section baby is basically born sterile. And so how much work you have to do depends on literally your entry into life. And then there are things like stress that impacts the microbiome and, of course, inflammatory foods like our gluten, poor quality dairy, trans fats. Like none of that really has anything to do with being an endurance athlete. But then we, on top of that, we add, say, the stress of a poorly prescribed program, too many refined carbohydrates to fuel, whether it's our training or our racing. And, you know, we've just got a lot of things that we're dealing with in this day and age that can impact the gut any pharmaceuticals, the oral contraceptive pill in females. Like I'm not trying to make it sound dire, but we've just got to understand what our barriers could be and that having a focus on, you know, offsetting some of those things we're exposed to is so important. Like the sugar that you consume each day to get through your training is destroying your gut. It will shift the balance from beneficial flora to a pathogenic overgrowth. 
And what does that end up resulting in? So if somebody is listening to this and being like, I don't care if I've got a pathogenic overgrowth staff, <laughs> like what does that result in long term? Well, the first thing that happens is that you just lose the capacity to digest and absorb your food properly. So even if you're spending all the money on really amazing high quality food and you've been doing LCHF for years, if you can't get the nutrients out of the food that you're eating, your body can't use that energy for your day-to-day goals, your performance, your training and racing, right? So you are what you eat, but you are what you absorb. So I think that's what's really important to understand at that top level point of view. It's about getting the most out of the nutrients that you're providing your body. But then, of course, those nutrients you need for recovery, right? So one of the things that we see in athletes with any kind of gut issue is how poor their recovery is. And then, of course, the opposite is true. When we start to fix the gut and absorb more of our nutrients, we recover better. What's the secret to greater performance? Consistent training. How do you be consistent? You recover better. And then, of course, you avoid injuries. Now, a lot of triathletes are carrying these long-term injuries which are inflammatory in nature. Where does inflammation come from? One, the food that we eat. Two, a dysbiotic gut. So fixing the gut is not what someone thinks about to treat their injury because they'll default to their physio or to their foam roller, but fixing the gut and managing that inflammation is critical to remove these long-term inflammatory injuries, which of course then gets you training consistently and of course you're recovering better and so your performance is going to increase. To me, it's not rocket science, yet we're searching for this magic performance pill externally when it's actually internal. Hmm. It's interesting because there are a lot of people that you look to who are, they look lean and fit and they're pretty fast. They're putting out really good times, tons of training, and they, yet you find out their diets are heavily carb based and they're not avoiding the sugar and sort of eating all the things that now we're starting to understand are maybe the food pyramid stuff and not the stuff we should be choosing. I've got a question about that. So I've got two friends, sorry to interrupt. Well, this is, these were who I was thinking of. I know who you're thinking of. Yeah. So I've got two friends, one of which he lives on pancakes, is a fantastic Mm -hmm. triathlete, performs really well, looks really fit in his forties, has an eight pack, works hard, but But doesn't have to work hard to work hard. But yeah, doesn't have to work hard to work hard. And then another guy who's more like into weightlifting and he drinks like 40 beers a week back when he was younger uh, fast food again ripped how is it that people some people can get away with that look like that and meanwhile if i overeat for like i Three i've, days in a I've row overeaten for Christmas. yeah i've overeaten for nine days since the last race of the year going into off season figure i indulge a little bit with not paying attention to calories and i'm up like eight pounds mm. Yeah, there's a few things to consider here. I mean, genetics does play a small role. It's not as large as we once thought, but of course, there's going to be a genetic predisposition to how you tolerate specifically carbohydrates. And then, of course, we look more specifically at what your current carbohydrate tolerance is. So remember how I said before that LCHF is that spectrum between 50 grams of carbs a day and 150 grams of carbs a day. Where we sit on that spectrum actually comes back to our carbohydrate tolerance. So if we have good carbohydrate tolerance, we can tend to be up at the 150 grams of carbs a day, 
if we have poor carbohydrate tolerance, we are down at about 50 grams of carbs a day. How do we work this out? Well, there are at least three blood tests that can tell us more about our current level of carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance. And Darren, yours might not be great right now, which is why you look at carbs and put on weight. Mm -hmm. And I have a few clients like that where we tend to have to go deeper into the gut to understand more about what the balance looks like because that's where you're going to get the long-term benefits to your body compositional goals because you can't just forever eat more, put on weight, eat less, lose weight. Like that's not a long-term strategy. We've got to go deeper than that and root cause. So one, looking at if there is a degree of carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance, and I've asked you to get those bloods. And then two, treating the imbalance in the gut, which is probably why you're susceptible to more of that inflammation because you can lose the weight quite quickly as well. So you're a fast responder on the other side. To me, that sounds like you're probably holding on to more inflammation, which is what you lose straight away. It's not body fat or, you know, weight kilograms necessarily that you're losing straight away. It's water weight, of course, which comes when you cut carbs and then inflammation from those previous food choices. What are those three tests? Blood glucose levels, so BGL. Yeah. HbA1c, your glycated hemoglobin, and then fasting insulin. Hmm. Am I doing any of those? I know I'm doing fasting blood glucose. Is that fasting insulin? No, they're different. I'm pretty sure you're doing all three. Mm. I'm not sure if we regularly test for the fasting blood insulin, but we do the HbA1c and then the uh, fasting blood glucose. So you'll be getting those. He's going to the doctor on Wednesday. I've sent him. So. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Feel free to add fasting insulin if they'll let you. It's just not one that's probably like, it's less routine, let's say that. Mm-hmm. But it's worth that conversation for sure. I'm just looking at the list I gave you. IGF-1. Let's put fasting insulin on it based on this conversation. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, re- I'll read it. Kim, it's on there. Yeah. Kim takes care of, see, you prescribe my food. Kim takes care of the food and me. I, yeah, I'm his scheduling yeah, manager I, and I'm more chef. into the bikes and YouTube yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the question, you know, we talk about these, I guess the, depending on whatever your mm. carbohydrate sensitivity levels are, could be why you can live on pancakes and be a lean, mean triathlon machine. Um, but at the same, on the same token, you know, you go to any Ironman race and you'll see a lot of triathletes who are training, you know, 10 to 20 hours a week. They are training for an Ironman. They're not lean. In fact, some are objectively overweight. So how does this happen when people are exercising that much and they're just, they're not super lean and you'd expect they would be? Well, you can't out train a bad diet. Like it's as simple as that. So that's the irony of, when you're doing endurance training and you're a sugar burner, you have terrible appetite control. So you eat all the food. Like Taryn, you've been there. You cannot stop grazing. You cannot stop thinking about food. You're eating every two hours. You're craving carbohydrates. Whenever you eat too many carbohydrates, your body produces insulin. It's a fat storage hormone. So too many carbs equals too much insulin equals fat storage. Like it's quite simple when you look at it that way. And when we identify what most endurance athletes eat, well, they eat too many carbohydrates. The other side to it, of course, is stress because for many people, if they're doing a lot of high-intensity training in a program that's not been well-designed, then that endurance training is a huge stressor on the body. And stress does a very similar thing. 
it tells your liver to dump glucose into your bloodstream, which is just like you ate sugar, which is more insulin, which is more fat storage. So endurance athletes that are sugar burning, especially those that are training with too much intensity, are definitely, if not already overweight, walking in that direction because they really need to like change what they eat. And I, I definitely think change their training program because too much intensity is not how you become a good endurance athlete. Full stop. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, I mean, that's what you preach, right? Taryn, a lot more zone two type work. Low intensity, mm. lots and totally. lots of low intensity, sprinkle exactly. in a little bit of high intensity. And people freak out bit. though. People freak out and say, I can't, I, I can't, how can I, I do a race if all I've be, done is yeah. this slow stuff? Or, Am I going to be prepared? They're yeah. always worried about that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. How do I get fast? All those sorts of questions. So, you know, we tend to follow Phil Maffetone's work. It's 80% low intensity, 20% high intensity. But of course it depends on what time of year as well, because you need an off season. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and people, I think they look at when I refer to that 80, 20 quite regularly too, and they say, mm well, okay, does that mean every workout is 80-20 and every week is 80-20 and every month is 80-20? Like, mm. no, it's 80-20 over the course of a year. So that means you're loading up on basically 100% low intensity in the off season, the base building season, and maybe it's more like 70-30 come race season or 60-40. But over the course of a year, the vast majority of your training is low intensity. And uh, yeah. yeah, and people, they freak out. We had, uh, they're very literal, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's well, not, they've it's also not never as simple. Really heard it before. They've only heard maybe old school thinking or very uh, more pain, more gain is right. what they hear. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's all people know. And they think Ironman means it has to be horrible and hard or any triathlon has to be horrible and hard all the time. Otherwise it's not an Ironman or it's not triathlon. Yeah, for sure. But we've got to change that message because too many people are either stopping triathlon because they're burnt out, exhausted, injured, have got some kind of a chronic health issue. And a lot of that could be avoided if they just like looked at things through the lens of what we're talking about. So changing how you eat, changing your training, like it can be quite sustainable. Like we all know there's nothing too healthy about an Ironman, (laughs) but you can train really well and you can you can look after your long-term health. Like I'm all for performance, don't get me wrong, but we need to have a longevity goal as well. We can't just neglect all of that. So your two friends that you guys have been mentioning, like good on them. I'm glad they've got an eight-pack. I love that they're fast. Great. Can they do that forever? That is the question. Hmm. Are some people just outliers though? Like are some people just for whatever reason they're outliers and they will be able to do that forever? I need to do their bloods. So I, I don't really hmm. look at health as a measure of your eight pack, sorry, but I, I would look at their bloods and look at any nutrient deficiencies, any signs of inflammation, any of that blood sugar dysregulation, like we said, those magic three, so BGL, HbA1c, fasting insulin, like I'd need to have a good look at their more long-term health parameters before. Um, I'm open to it. I think they could feel better and perform and recover better if they cut the inflammation. Well, and I guess that's where you have people who, you know, they are endurance athletes of whatever type, maybe they're marathon runners, really lean, fit, young, and all of a sudden they have a heart attack and everyone's shocked, but they were so healthy. And I guess we don't see their blood, so we don't know. Maybe they weren't that healthy, right? They looked it, but like you say, you don't base it on a six-pack or eight. No, definitely not. Let's talk about calories here, because this was the thing that you floored me with the last. Oh yeah, call he was really upset. Oh yeah, Steffi was so <laughs> upset. Like, what do you mean? Well, I was so that you wor- eat too much. Well, yeah, that. when you said you you eat too much, so I was eating I, about thirty five hundred to four thousand calories, too much. and I thought, well, here I was. See, I've 
maybe, okay, maybe, perhaps, this was a, like, the food Wake industry creeping into my my psyche, where I've heard of these stories of athletes that hire some nutritionists, and it's more like bodybuilder nutritionists, and they increase their calories to 5,000 calories a day to lose weight because they're under eating. And then there's now this stigma, danger of athletic starvation. So you say like 2,600 to 3,000 calories. I'm like, oh my, she's taking my calories away. What am I going to do? Okay, so like fill me in. How do we figure out what an appropriate amount of calories are? Like, I mean, you can use me and and whatever you figured out to get to that range for me as an example, if you want, because I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because we've looked at all for so long, we've like plugged our weight and height and activity into an online calculator and it spat out for us calories and macros. Like we've got to stop looking at biology as being maths. It's not. It's quite a complicated process, of course, the physiology behind whether it is just looking at digestion or looking at fat loss specifically. So I actually go, I don't look at your, like, I look at your training, of course, your output and how much you weigh to get that sort of sliding scale. But I actually look more specifically at what nutrients you need. So how are we going to get you to be LCHF, so that lower carbohydrate, healthy fat, but then where do you need to sit on that spectrum? So you can recall I gave you 15% carbohydrate. So I was looking more at, all right, how can I give you enough carbohydrate to burn fat because you've got a body comp goal, but also to fuel your training, especially when we started working together. This is before your race, right? So you weren't in the off season. Mm-hmm. So then I look at, all right, if you're having this much carbohydrate, we know I, I gave you 20% protein, which falls into that sort of moderate protein description of LCHF, and the rest was fat. So it's 65%. That So that tells you how many calories you need per day. Does that make sense? Because we know that in one gram of fat, there's nine calories. We know that in one gram of carbohydrate, there's four calories. In one gram of protein, there's four calories. So I go from the macros up to calories. Okay. So that makes sense. That math makes sense. I'll play devil's advocate here and ask you the question that has historically been what the assumed correct thing is that you said you want to get away from that, but why do you want to get away from like, say my basal metabolic rate for Terran just to exist is 2000 calories. And then I burn one to 2000 every day in heavy training. I was under the assumption I'm like, eh, well, somewhere in between three and 4,000. Why, why didn't that work? Why was I putting on weight doing that? Because weight loss doesn't occur from eating less. So it's not about burning more and eating less. It's about controlling your hormones. So you can eat very low calorie and still not lose weight if you're making the wrong food choices, like too many carbohydrates, too many inflammatory foods. And then you can also eat eventually more calories. So when you've got better blood sugar control, when you're a better fat burner, when you've got no signs of carbohydrate intolerance, you'll be able to eat more calories as long as your carbs are still low to burn fat. So with you and what you've shared with me around your history, how you were eating quite frequently, your relationship with food, um, your energy levels in the afternoon, like there's lots of signs 
that we've got to fix the underlying metabolic stuff first so that we can set up the meal-to-meal windows, make you an even better fat burner, even though, of course, there are signs of that already, fix what's going on in the afternoon for you and look at longevity in the picture as well. So what I prescribe you in terms of calories is not forever. It, I'm not saying it, it's likely to change when we fix the underlying issue, but you're eating too much food because you had symptoms as well as I still think that you're, you were yo-yoing too much. We've got to get you to the point where you don't really yo-yo. You might be able to put on one or two pounds in an off-season, but eight or nine or more, it's just showing you that there's some, something that needs to be fixed under the hood. Mm. That's interesting the way that you say that because why I've tried this this fast-mimicking diet now that I'm in the off-season, I've got a small window where I'm not really training at all. I thought back to when I did it last year, and it felt like I got reset, and I felt more like that guy with the eight-pack where if I did eat bad food on a weekend, the one night that we would go out, I wouldn't put on weight. I felt like I didn't have to eat constantly. Like it it reset. Mm. I mentioned on Instagram today, it reset my association with food. And I feel like what happened in between that was June, 2018. And now a year and a bit later, it's just slipped. And I guess the diet that I had up to June 2018 led to me being in that position where I needed a fast mimicking diet to kind of reset. And then I had a similar diet afterwards. So it's more like I I think I needed to revisit that as a reset because I'm still living in modern society where a lot of things Tempt tempt me and a lot of things get to my gut and I train very hard. So that stress comes up. And I don't know, I just thought about that and the way that you explain that. It's like, I feel like right now I need a reset to set things straight. And But what she's saying, I think, is you shouldn't need this annual reset if things are all working properly under the hood, as you put it. I mean, I like an FMD for lots of reasons. Many people need the reset because of reality. Like we tend to go off the rails a little bit for one of a better description. But it's more about like... Not everyone eats what you eat and puts on that much weight from it, you know. So I think there's like more to the underlying stuff like in your physiology that could be fixed to make this more of a long-term strategy so you're not having to sort of try a new diet or, you know, like I think we can find a plan for you that works forever with iterations based on where you are in your season and, and obviously how your body responds. I love how calm you sound about this. I think this is great. It's like, yeah, this is just pretty straightforward. I think that's fantastic. But again, I know you're also coming from a place of test, don't guess, which is, you know, another great phrase that I love. You can't, guessing isn't really going to get anywhere. You want to test them. So that's going to help. Not to stay, you know, too focused on Taryn specifically. Something I wanted to ask, because we get this question all the time, can you lose weight in season? Should you try to lose weight in season? Or is weight loss really meant for out of season when you're not training so hard? Yeah, that's going to depend on how much and where they're coming from. Because if someone's eating like quite an inflammatory diet or a very Western food pyramid, then simply by focusing on real food, which is going to be great for them to do in season, they're going to lose weight. And that would be a good thing. And then if someone's already doing LCHF, they're eating reasonable calories and their macros are pretty good, if we were like tweaking their carbs, say lower, 
but they were in the peak of their training with more intensity, getting closer to sort of race-specific stuff, then I wouldn't be doing that. I'd be waiting till the off-season for something more specific like that. So it's really quite individual. depends on how big the changes are and, of course, you know, where they're starting from with what their current intake looks like. Okay. I know I'm just looking at the clock here and we've taken quite a bit of your time already. We have a couple more questions yet, but one thing that I definitely want to ask you for our female listeners, I mean, obviously there's going to be a difference in what they do versus males, um, particularly in regards to our hormones and women of reproductive age specifically need to be very careful, I guess, that I'm assuming the diet would look somewhat different. Again, I know individual to individual, but just on an overall basis, it's a little different for women. We need carbs a little bit more, question mark? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so I would always prescribe more carbohydrates for female of reproductive age, as you say, so not so much menopausal. So slightly more carbohydrates. They are usually having like less calories, of course, relative. Slightly less protein, not in percentage, just in grams per day, which is, again, relative to body weight. And in most cases, I'm giving them like a little bit more of a gut health focus around, say, resistant starch for them to increase their carbohydrates without impacting their blood sugar. Because, of course, we still want that low-carb model to give someone great blood sugar control, craving management and and things like that, the opposite of what, say, a more low-fat approach has done to their metabolism and to their daily blood sugar control. All right. So I'd say the main difference is that is, is that more carbohydrates as a percentage. Okay. Again, I, I know we've said probably a good bet to go to someone qualified like yourself or other holistic nutritionist type folks who can run this testing, make sure that you know what you're dealing with before you jump in. Unfortunately, a lot of people won't do that. They just want to, you know, they'll hear someone on the internet do something and then they just do it. So if some folks are going to do that. You know, we just want to get some of those basic facts out there to make sure that, you know, they at least have a basic idea if they're not going to go ahead and test that at least they have a sense of it. Yeah, for sure. We could talk for Forever, a long clearly. time about this because there, there are so many nuances <laughs> and, and this is such a, a big topic. But let's say we've got people on board with the idea of addressing their health in general. And let's say it is somebody that maybe they don't know if they want to go vegan or they want to go low carb, high fat, or they want to go down the testing route, like just where would you suggest people start? They're bought into it, but they don't even know where to start. So if they're fairly new, I would say the mantra is Jeff, just eat real food. So you focus on food that comes out of the ground off a tree or from an animal. I think we focus on as a result of that, we're cutting out packets, boxes, and food with a mascot and we're shopping the perimeter. So rather than going into the aisles, we're shopping the perimeter for fruit, veg, eggs, meat, et cetera, or better still, we're going to like farmer's markets and a local green grocer, if that's what they're called over your way, because I, I just don't think we need to be supporting big food. And if we try to do it in a like commercial supermarket, we'll end up with some kind of an excuse like eating healthy is expensive when that's just how you're shopping. You can do it really cost effectively if you shop well, like at the markets or the green grocers, as I mentioned. And it really is about keeping it as simple as real food. Or as a friend once told me, one ingredient foods. For example, broccoli. There is one ingredient in broccoli. It's broccoli. Exactly. (laughs) 
So I always like that one ingredient. Awesome. Yeah, you don't need to know anything about reading labels. No, exactly. They typically don't have them on broccoli. (laughs) What about your site? You have a ton of info with podcasts and books and uh, all kinds of things. Where should people start if they want to go to your site? Thank you. My online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. And a lot of what we've spoken about today is in my book, Low Carb, Healthy Fat Nutrition. So you can check that out online. And my podcast is called The Real Food Real. So there's hundreds of episodes available for you to take a deep dive into and hope to see you over there. She's such a pro, Kim. I know. That was good. Holy smokes. I know uh, which podcast I'm going to be subscribing to and binging over the next few days. (laughs) Steph, one last really, really quick question because we actually do get this quite often. Where does veganism fall into the spectrum of this? Because we definitely get... Oh, she did so well. She didn't get onto really any controversial topics, controversial topics and now you and now you hand her this at the end Kim, no i just, right just like a, just a quick a quick word on this because we get asked so often we'd be remiss if we didn't just you and know we, touch and we on should it. acknowledge that like i said we were largely vegan eating not vegan but like 80 90 of our meals were plant-based well for yours a good, mine, not, a good, mine not so much good but. two years Yeah, I think we can all acknowledge the importance of plants. So most of what I prescribe comes from non-starchy veggies, like people are having two, four, six, eight cups a day, depending on how much food they're eating. And I think the one good thing about the conversation around veganism, or one of the good things, is how much we're really focusing on the significance of vegetables and plants. So that's really important. I think if you're going to be a vegan, you need to learn more about how to not fall into the trap of relying on carbohydrates like grains and quinoas and buckwheats and looking at how you can get lots of non-starchy veggies where your proteins are coming from and often you need to combine proteins obviously to get all of your amino acids and you can still get lots of plant-based fats. You can do LCHF vegan. It's going to be slightly higher carbohydrate in terms of your macronutrient percentages but you've got to avoid that more conventional vegan, which is really high carb. And, you know, of course, avoiding fake meats because they are not food. They are food-like products and they all have very questionable ingredients, including soy and like even gluten and wheat. So be a real food vegan, but do your homework. And of course, take a B12 supplement because you can't get it from food when you're a vegan. Nice. Well, well encapsulated in just a moment. I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> that was my summary. <laughs> Perfect. I'm sure we can and should do a part B with you uh, somewhere down the line stuff. Maybe we can update once Taryn's a little further into his new new eating lifestyle with you. But thank you so much for joining us today. This was so educational. I know our listeners are going to love it. So really, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was fun. I can't wait to come back for part two. And thanks for taking care of my gut stuff. Oh, yeah, that too. (laughs) It it felt good in those few weeks before the race, before I turned into a sugar burner on race day. But (laughs) to go through that and all of a sudden not feel like I had to eat every two hours, that was a change. Yeah, that's awesome. Signs of, you know, more positive things to come. I love it. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? 
I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.